when we lose, um, sometimes we try to like find the win in the in the loss, and we never actually do proper critique and self critique. So when we lose, we should do a critique and self critique. We don't have to, we shouldn't beat up on ourselves, but we should learn, evaluate, and then incorporate that into the work that we do going forward. So that's to me how you take your wins and you take your losses. And you're able to win without being irrationally exuberant, and you're able to lose without dipping into despair. This is Surviving Elections, a mini series on Healing Justice podcast. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this is our last episode of this series focusing on the 2018 midterm elections in the United States and the intersections of electoral politics, social movements, and well-being and sustainability all over the past month. If you've been tuning into the series so far, you've heard from Sunrise talking about movement strategy integrated with electoral work. You've heard from women campaign managers who are transforming campaign culture. You've heard from the movement to unionize campaign workers and from inspiring leaders like Stacey Abrams last week on our episode with the candidates. But you are here today to process the election results, everything that comes after election day and all of the emotion and the work that it takes to understand what is happening that can go into the days and weeks following an election. Here's what the party at my house sounded like last night when we found out the Democrats took back the house. Throughout the night, there was cheering, there was booing, there was lots of weird, guilty half-excitement in celebrating blue victories that in any other context we would have never been excited about. And there was also a ton of genuine excitement around sweeping firsts for women and for people of color, especially Muslims and Native Americans, and even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez becoming the youngest member of Congress in U.S. history. And so, there's a lot of feelings, right? And so we're sitting here this morning to begin to sift through the spin, all of the political hot takes, um, trying to sort of find our way in community, even though most of our friends who have been working on this election are exhausted and uh, kind of dropping off the map uh, right in these moments where we need to make meaning together to convene a conversation about victory and loss. And joining us this morning is Maurice Mitchell, the National Director of Working Families Party, Alexandra Rojas, who is the Executive Director of Justice Democrats, and Barbara Dudley, who is a lifelong organizer with an incredible resume that you'll hear all about from her. We're talking about the results, taking care of ourselves and each other, and how we cope with winning and losing. We're putting the midterms in longer-term context of a lifetime of work for social justice, and we also recorded a couple of these interviews on Facebook Live this morning for the first time ever. So if you want to hear a full unedited interview, you can check out our Facebook page at Healing Justice Podcast for the full-length videos. We dedicate this episode to all who do not have the right to vote. Undocumented and non-citizen folks, young people, disenfranchised people because of criminal record, and people all across the world who are dramatically impacted by the political uh, choices in the United States but do not have the right to vote here. 
made more victories like Amendment 4 in Florida, which restores felons' voting rights, sweep the country. And may we all be deeply accountable to your well-being in every way. So this morning, we're starting with Maurice Mitchell, who's the National Director for Working Families Party, which you'll hear us call WFP. He has over two decades of experience in political and community organizing. And before starting his role with WFP quite recently on August 1st, he worked closely with Black Lives Matter Global Network. So Maurice is bringing deep knowledge about organizing in one of the most important racial justice movements of our time to WFP and the electoral politics game. Here's our conversation from early this morning when he was in the Milwaukee airport. All right. Good morning, Maurice. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited you're here. You are literally in the airport in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We may hear some announcements as a result of that. That's right. That's Um, probably likely. How are you feeling this morning? I feel really great. I feel energized. I just spent two days on the ground in Wisconsin, and I was shuttling from Racine to Milwaukee to Madison, And, you know, what I witnessed from everyday people who were taking their democracy in their hands was just really, really inspiring. And before that, I was in Atlanta and what I saw there was blew me away. So I think, you know, what's happening all around the country is just super inspiring in terms of people transforming themselves and their democracy by by taking action. That's amazing. I'm super jealous because I I moved to New York a couple years ago, but before that, spent every minute since Walker was elected trying to get Walker out and woke up this morning so excited to see such close election results, but with Evers winning the governorship and also so sad about Randy Bryce and other candidates I know we were really pulling for losing. So yeah, what's your sense of kind of the overall landscape this morning, given that victory and loss? Well, it's it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You know, that's that's what I could say. And, you know, what we're building is a lot deeper than election day. What we have to build is a new way of being, a new way of being in relationship to one another, a new type of politics. And that's something that doesn't happen one election cycle. I'm really encouraged by the wins that we did have. And, you know, some of the places where we fell short, we we just fell short, which leads me to believe that we're on the right track, you know, and that we have to be encouraged by some of these these near victories. You know, I think sometimes, you know, in this winner takes all sort of zero sum system that we have, whenever we lose, we just kind of, it's just, binary all or nothing. But sometimes, yeah, we didn't win the electoral victory, but we built something really beautiful. Like we built a real foundation for an electoral victory to come. And also within that organizing, you know, communicating with people who have never been involved before and building connections that never existed before and doing the the day-to-day organizing, the inglorious sort of not super sexy stuff that's what's going to get us out of what is really a decades-long play by the far right. And so I'm, I woke up really encouraged, of course, very disappointed in some ways, but overall really encouraged. And if you have a long sort of vision and a long view of what we're building, and if you're sort of playing chess 
and not checkers, I think this is a good day. Yeah, and I know, so you're part of a somewhat new leadership transition that's happened at Working Families Party, right? And Working Families Party building a third party for, for progressive working folks. And I, I've heard you talk so clearly about the need to build a multiracial populist movement. And so I'm curious about, like, we saw all of these sweeping firsts last night, the youngest woman elected to Congress, first two Muslim women, first two Native American women. Like, how would you explain to somebody who doesn't know quite what you mean, what is a multiracial populist movement and how you see it growing? Well, many people woke up um, November 2016 really shocked by the Trump movement. And the Trump movement represents sort of a, a white nationalist populist politic, right? And it seeks to win elections and to drive its very, very radical agenda by dividing us, dividing us across gender lines, um, across race, across cultural lines. And it's been pretty effective in doing that, using our country's history, the racism that's deeply embedded in our DNA, uh, divisions and fears, in order to advance a corporate agenda. Well, multiracial populism is the opposite of that, where our differences cause curiosity, where we seek to understand one another and where we recognize that as working class people, despite real differences, there's so many things that connect us and there's so many good reasons for us to be in solidarity and that in fact, the only way that we could overcome our challenges is through solidarity. And that if you're a white working class person who got laid off, that it might be a misdirection of your frustration, your legitimate frustration and anger at the system and its lack of support for you to redirect that anger at immigrants or black folks or whoever the other is and directed at your boss and the corporations that have conspired to create an economic system that can't support us. And then similarly, if you're a person of color, that we could create a unique bond across the many different sort of divisions that often divide communities of color. So in many urban communities, both Black and Latino folks live in, live in the same communities, often in the same urban centers but haven't developed a meaningful solidarity movement with one another. So we have to figure that out, right? And if we could, not only could we win elections, but we could transform our society and we could be able to create majorities of people who want a, an economy and a society that works for all of us. So that's what multiracial populism is. It's about how we could get to majorities for a very, very progressive, very revolutionary transformational set of politics as they've been able to get to majorities for a regressive sort of form of politics that is driven by fear, driven by the concerns and the, the deep sort of fears that many white folks have that their status as, as number one in the racial hierarchy might be collapsing. And all, those, and all those things that are, are woven into the fabric of the DNA of America. There's another strain in the DNA of America that around us showing up for one another and around us sharing and around us connecting with one another that we want to tap into. 
and there's a whole other strain uh, that we actually want to graft into this into and create a new DNA, right? So that's the other piece of it. It's transformative because we're not just relying on the on the old DNA. We're actually trying to reinvent social relations uh, in the image of the world that we want to create. And did you see any glimmers, like in a particular moment in Georgia or in Wisconsin, of of that kind of future coming together? Absolutely. In in Georgia, what I saw was so many young working class Black people involved and engaged and organizing. And that was, was just, it blew me away. I knocked doors for a few hours with a 24-year-old woman who got laid off from her hospitality job and was so, just so grateful that she was able to participate in this way and connected so deeply with Stacey Abrams. Another woman who was inside, was incarcerated for a decade and just got released in March and was so grateful that even though she wasn't able to vote, that she could use her time in order to motivate other people to vote. And the fact that Stacey Abrams had, has a brother who was incarcerated and what it would mean to have a governor that had family members who were formerly incarcerated and how that would change the perspectives for formerly incarcerated people in, in, in society, Stacey won. And so that really touched me and, and speaks of what's possible when we create a politics that sees everybody, right? You know, I'm talking about people who are at the margins, often at the margins of our society, working class, young black folks, formerly incarcerated people. And then in Wisconsin, you know, I, I woke up really early and I did some campaigning with Mandela Barnes, who is going to be the next lieutenant governor. And I was at the Miller Brewing Plant. And, you know, the workers there, that, that's who I'm talking about. It's a multiracial working class crew of people. And, you know, it was just really heartening to hear the excitement and the voices of many of the workers who said, you know, you know we, were, we got up like 6 a.m. and folks were like, you know, already voted, already early voted, already voted for you with a lot of excitement, you know, and it ranged from race, gender, age. And so, you know, it gave me a lot of hope that if we communicate with care and curiosity and with respect with our folks, regardless of race or class or gender, people are going to connect. And I think, unfortunately, you know, the folks in the traditional political institutions have failed to do that. And, you know, the two-party system disincentivizes communicating with people like they're actual people and showing that level of care and thoughtfulness and, and sort of building you around with folks and bringing people together across difference. It disincentivizes all of those things, which is one of the reasons why I'm trying to build the Working Families Party so we could be the political home for that multiracial populism that I think is so, so necessary. And again, it's not something that's going to materialize overnight or over an election cycle. It has to be something that we're committed to over years and years. This is a, it's a long sport. It's a marathon. Well, Maurice, I'm curious. I mean, you were up incredibly late last night to see those results come in Wisconsin. Now you're like already at the airport on a flight. I know you got a lot of work ahead of you. You have a lot of work behind you. You sound to me really grounded in the long vision in a way that is maybe less 
tripped up in the intensity of the election cycle because it is a long game. But I also know for myself, like these moments come and there's a lot of intensity, right? Like there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot to process intellectually real quick. There's a lot of strategy decisions that have to happen. How are you feeling and like, how are you planning to sort of take care of and pace yourself as the cycle is sort of coming to a close for this particular moment of the midterms? Yeah, so my, my mantra has been, and I just, you know, I came on August 1st, so um, I'm new to the Working Families Party. I'm certainly, not, I'm certainly not new to organizing or movement, but I'm new to the Working Families Party. But my mantra has been chess, not checkers. And I think the chess analogy is so helpful because I'm not a great chess player, but I've, I've played all my life. And, and you know, I'm, I'm probably like less than mediocre, but I've played all my life and trying to get better. But, you know, with chess, there's no real quote unquote victory until, until checkmate. And so you could actually take a bunch of your opponent's pieces off of the board and that still isn't victory. And your opponent still has a chance until checkmate. So there's a certain level of humility and a certain level of both humility and the fact that there's always a possibility that you may win or lose, even if you feel like you're up, and a certain uh, tolerance and equanimity involved. And, and even when you get some pieces off of the board, don't indulge in, in irrational exuberance until you've actually won, you know? And I think that that's really helpful. Also, don't indulge in an irrational despair until you've actually won or lost, you know? So it's maintaining the equanimity. And we always knew that we would win and lose some. And there'd be some that we really, really had our hearts set on that we would lose. And there'd be others that we would win that we had no idea what was on the table. And that was true yesterday. And as long as we're aware of that, and we're actually building a long-term strategy for change, then that keeps you grounded. That keeps you emotionally grounded and doesn't allow you to indulge in the over-the-top irrational exuberance or over-the-top irrational despair. And, you know, it's okay to feel, you know, disappointed and sad and anxious and all those things, but you have to allow yourself to feel those things and then let them pass. And also understand that when it comes to like deep, deep despair and cynicism, just be clear that those are, are political projects of the right, right? And it's our job as organizers to frame our movement in broad enough terms that our people don't get caught in deep despair and cynicism because of momentary losses. That's actually our job. It's our political duty to challenge cynicism and despair, the deep cynicism and despair. Skepticism, like healthy skepticism, is good and healthy. And I think we should be, you know, critiquing and self-critiquing and challenging ourselves and each other to be better and sharpen ourselves. But, you know, cynicism is not a very useful tool. And, and deep despair leads to people turning off. And we actually, our movements and our politics are fueled by collective action, which is many, many people turning on. So, you know, as organizers, and especially organizers on the left, we need to see it as our duty to both internally, but then certainly with the people that we seek to organize, challenge these narratives of despair, challenge these narratives of cynicism, and expand our perspective so we have a long sort of sense of the duty that we're engaged in. 
Well, when you said um, irrational exuberance, I know before we went live, you were mentioning seeing my video on Facebook of dancing because when I found out that Scott Walker uh, was out in Wisconsin and and um, oh. No, no, no. I know no, you're not I mean, dancing, but <laughs> um, it's good to feel. It's good to feel the despair and let it pass, and the joy too, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, listen. I mean, I think it's it's these are all subtle arts, right? Because another thing that we sometimes fail to do is to take our victories and to take our losses. And there's ways to take victories and take and to take losses. Like I think you're taking the victory quite well, and that's a that's actually a muscle we need to build where we're able to say. This is great. This is a victory. It doesn't mean that we've created whole new social relations and we've reestablished a new economic system, but this is a victory. And there's this sort of, on the left, there's this sort of tendency, and maybe it's just human, where when there's a victory, there's always somebody to be like, yeah, but, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like uh, Tony Evers one, but, but yeah, but what about neoliberal capitalism and patriarchy and homophobia and and, you know, transphobia, they still exist. It's like, well, no election was going to solve those things, right? And so we could still dance for a Mandela Barnes and Tony Evers victory because it's a defeat of Scott Walker and it's a defeat of the Koch brothers and it's a defeat of this long-term right-wing play against workers' democracy and workers' rights. And we could organize, you know, we could do both. And then it's also really important that we could take our losses. So when we lose... Um, sometimes we try to like find the win in the, in the loss and we never actually do proper critique and self-critique. So when we lose, we should do a critique and self-critique. We don't, have to, we shouldn't beat up on ourselves, but we should learn, evaluate, and then incorporate that into the work that we do going forward. So that's to me how you take your wins and you take your losses and you're able to win without being irrationally exuberant and you're able to lose without dipping into despair. I really appreciate you rooting us in the long game, particularly this morning where we're all kind of waking up and trying to orient to the facts of what have happened and also decide how much to feel and how to feel. And thanks so much for making time for us. We're going to let you get to your flight. Thank you. And, and I just want to give special props to all my folks in Georgia still counting votes and all my folks in Florida who won Amendment 4. We didn't get the victory that we wanted with the Gillum race, but it's because of the work of the Gillum campaign that led to many of the victories that we saw in Florida. And then our folks in Massachusetts that, that won on that one trans justice and trans equality in Massachusetts. So I just wanted to give props to all those folks and the many, many other people, including the folks in New York who swept the state Senate and all the, all the other great work that we can go on and on and talk about. But thank you so much. This series is sponsored by Groundswell Action Fund, the biggest funder of women of color-led C4 work in the country. It has been such a joy partnering with their team to bring you this series. We've had the pleasure of featuring one of their grantees on the podcast every week and to hear from women of color leaders on the ground about how they're mobilizing votes and building the movement. It has been such a sweet way to partner together to amplify those stories and to spread the word about the important work that they do. And by the way, we are now open to exploratory conversations with foundations or other organizations who may want to do a similar partnership for season two. So if you're interested in that, reach on out to us. 
Here's Groundswell Action Fund's Managing Director, Charlene Sinclair. Thanks so much, Kate. We are so proud to be a part of this amazing journey with you and the healing justice community. Groundswell Action Fund is the largest funder of 501c4 work that is centering and resourcing the strongest grassroots organizing and base building efforts that's led by women of color, low-income women, and transgender people across the U.S. So thorough has been the shutout of women of color and transgender people work from the electoral arena that our modest grants have easily become the largest grants that many of these organizations are receiving. This is deeply troubling because the work of these women, the work of these people actually embody what healing justice looks like in the world. In communities across the country, women are riding buses, having block parties and happy hours, and door knocking to engage black people, brown people, indigenous people, queer people. In other words, everyone in this moment and for future moments. They're refusing to allow people to become monetized in the one vote equals X dollar system of traditional electoral organizing. Instead, they are talking to folks and reweaving community. They are saying, I see you and we're in this together. What is more healing than to be truly seen? What is more just than to linger, to talk, to invite, to invite you in and refuse your disposability? Across the news, we hear about a red wave or a blue wave. But we are saying that there's a bigger justice wave rising. It's exhilarating, it's freeing, and it's joyful. Join this wave by saying yes, amen, and ashe to the leadership of women of color and trans people of color by donating to Groundswell Action Fund. Join this wave and go to bit.ly slash Groundswell Action. You can hear Charlene and I talk a little bit deeper on a Facebook Live on the Healing Justice podcast page. And as Charlene names, this work goes on. Only a little over 10 years into my own real political engagement, I often find that it's hard to know how exceptional the times we're living in really are. So back before election day, uh, Guido Giorgenti, who's been working on this series with us, introduced me to Barbara Dudley. I called her up to talk a little bit about a longer view of history, but I want you to understand Barbara's resume. It's quite serious. Um, She's been a movement activist for 50 plus years, but only in the last 10 did she engage in electoral politics via the Working Families Party. She started out as a lawyer for GIs resisting the war in Vietnam, for tenant unions, and for unionizing farm workers, and went on to serve as the director of the National Lawyers Guild during the Reagan years. She was then director of Greenpeace US and the director of strategic campaigns for the national AFL-CIO during the Clinton years. She also did legal work in the past for the Black Panthers, and reflects now that she's finally realized that by disdaining electoral politics, her generation of left activists had abandoned the arena to the right wing, which had taken full advantage. And so it was time for her to jump in. 
I'm excited to hear more about what she means by that. And her longer term perspective is definitely a source of healing and inspiration for me. Seeing ourselves in a longer arc and a longer view of history to understand our current moment. Now, remember we chatted a couple weeks ago, so you'll hear us referring to sort of the the pre-midterm election times, but uh, this conversation feels pretty evergreen to me. Here's Barbara and I. Hey, so we are so excited to be talking to you to make a little bit more sense of what's going on in this political cycle in a longer term view of building political power and shifts that happen through movements. And just to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are and some of those big shifts that you've seen, could you give us kind of a top line version of your political involvement, some of the key moments that you've been part of in your lifetime? Sure. I was born right after World War II. I am literally the first of the baby boomers or one of the first. I was born in early in 1946. So there's some perspective. And my freshman year in college was the year that John Kennedy was assassinated. I went through college and law school in the 60s, got involved, obviously, in the anti-Vietnam War movement and out of law school went to represent GIs who were resisting the war and being tried in courts martial over in Southeast Asia and Vietnam and in the Philippines. And then I came back and I did various kinds of law in California. I worked with a group, this is something very few young people have ever heard of, but it was relevant at the time, a group called the Displaced Homemakers, which was my mother's generation of women who had been homemakers and were left out of the workforce. And it seemed important to me that we make common cause with the older women who had very different life experiences than we did. So I did that. And then I worked with farm workers in California and went after that to New York as president of the National Lawyers Guild, where I stayed for five years and then went to run a foundation, then went to Greenpeace. I was the executive director of Greenpeace US for five years. And my last year in DC, I worked for the national AFL-CIO trying to do something I'd been trying to do all my life, which is to help build a bridge between the enviros and the labor movement. And then I came out to Oregon, where I am now. And I teach part-time, very part-time at Portland State. I'm active in help to start here, the Working Families Party. So that's my life. I'm really impressed by how succinctly you were able to do that. That is a a huge range of experience and makes me excited to sort of ask this first question. Given that, I mean, particularly working through many different decades and political climates shifting throughout that period of time, and then also sort of having the political lens with working families, the labor lens, the feminist lens, how do you see the political cycle that we're in right now? in the context of the political and social trajectory of your lifetime and of this country? Like, how do we make sense of what are some of the shifts and breaks and extremes that are coming up now? Is this just part of what happens every couple of decades or is there something unique that's happening? Well, I don't think it's unique. I mean, Donald Trump, yes, is a unique character, but I think that the sort of political trajectory that we're on was fairly predictable. I think that For myself, I trace it back to, oh, starting with Reagan and the changes that the Reagan administration brought about both socially and, more importantly, economically, 
And then the Clinton administration and the Democratic Leadership Council, which kind of created the Clinton years that totally changed what the Democratic Party was, and the passing of NAFTA and the WTO and all of that, and just the shift in the economy that resulted from those three things, the Reagan years, the Clinton years, and the, the trade deals and the, the underlying sort of neoliberal economics of the trade deal, made it pretty inevitable that we were going to end up in this completely economically unequal place inevitably, I think, lead to the kinds of splits that we see now, the kind of anger and rebellion. I mean, the fact that that you're seeing exactly the same dynamics in Europe should be a clue to us that this is not unique, that there's something going on in the global economy and the global environment that is causing this moment to be this moment. When you look at those trends, I mean, there's these different pieces of the polarization to look at, right? Like we have the trend happening again globally around fascism and also what's happening here in the U.S. And then also we have like a really popularizing resistance movement right now. I'm curious, like when you look at what's happening now, do you feel like the anxiety and fear of, whoa, what's happening politically is really scary? Or do you feel energized by the movement piece? I feel both. (laughs) No doubt the same way you do. Um, I think that there is incredible opportunity right now. There is going to be a transition. It could go either way, as they say. I mean, it could go toward fascism. I don't think that's an unfounded fear. But it also could go toward some kind of new global justice movement, some new economy in the United States. A lot of things could happen. I mean, look back to sort of the years before the New Deal during the Great Depression, there was incredible turmoil, not only in this country, but internationally. Because of that, some very positive changes were able to be made in this country, but they involved a lot of organizing and it has, you know, it has to come from the bottom up. And so the fact that there is that kind of energy and enthusiasm right now, to me, is a very, very hopeful sign. I also think that there are a lot of ways in which we have to look at how we're doing the organizing and what we're working toward, because there's a danger of putting too much emphasis on elections. I'm happy we're paying attention to elections, which I think my generation abandoned for way too long and left to the right wing. I mean, I have a whole story I could tell about this trajectory from when Barry Goldwater was soundly defeated in 1964 and how the right wing got their act together. And you could see it happening on college campuses. The young Republicans, you know, who we just derided as ridiculous, were actually working toward very concrete goals. And they were doing that nationally as well. And there was a whole movement of We are going to take this country back for conservatism. And that's essentially what led to Ronald Reagan. There was a very serious step-by-step plan put in place, and we need to do the same. There was, I think, a lot of confusion for us around Obama because he was so, so impressive and so hopeful and so easy to generate hope in us and just a decent human being that we wanted to believe that things were going to change. But the problem was 
his politics were very similar to those of the Clinton administration. And so the underlying economic realities didn't change. And to say nothing about the fact that he had a Congress that once it flipped to Republican wasn't going to let him breathe. So there was a certain, I think, deflation of hope that luckily, I think, didn't survive as deflation, but kind of galvanized a movement from the base, which is what we need. And we need to not just put our hopes in the single candidate. You can't just elect somebody and then, quote, hold them accountable. You have to also support them. You have to have a real party underneath them or a real base of some sort where you engage people year round. You know, you actually keep your party intact, not just for an election cycle, but around policy ideas, do the research, do the organizing, to have a plan that you then support your candidates in moving forward. And you don't just go and protest when they're unable to get something passed. You feel the same responsibility. They just happen to be your spokespeople. But you are equally responsible for making something happen and and providing the ballast for them so that they can stay afloat when they're in those settings, which are very soul-killing settings. And they need all the support they can get. So we need to build serious, sustainable organizations that see a whole picture. Don't just go protest. Don't just know what you're against. But also work hard to figure out what you're for and elect people who agree with that and then help them to implement it. We have to have an agenda, in other words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious in relation to what you're sharing, if there's a specific moment in time that stands out to you where something happened either on like a movement or organization level or an electoral level that you remember feeling completely and utterly defeated. Yes. (laughs) Curious about what you think about that feeling. Like, how do you process it? How do you move with it? And, And also knowing that they're you know, it's something that we're all coping with also right now, right? How do we experience defeat and act at the same time? Is there, yeah, is there a particular one that stands out to you? The one that stands out most to me that changed my life was when Ronald Reagan was elected. When he became president, it was area by area, agency by agency, what was going to be done, what changes were going to be made. The most devastating being dropping The marginal tax rate from 70%, it had been as high as 90% on the richest people. It had come down to 70% under Kennedy. Reagan dropped it down to 28%. But the potential for the government to do the right thing by its people was decimated. And that was exactly what was intended. The other moment that I thought resulted from the Reagan tax breaks was you had all these people all of a sudden getting very rich because they didn't have to pay taxes any longer on their capital gains and so on. And you had this burst of foundation, of philanthropy, so-called. And that's true on the left and the right. And we fell for it just hook, line, and sinker to the point where what we once had as movements then morphed into this nonprofit sector. And we look to the the foundations, the philanthropies, the wealthy people on our side of the political equation 
to fund us as opposed to taking care of our own needs, which means they set the agenda. That's something we have to look right in the face because it promotes this incredible cynicism about, you know, that there really is no democracy. It's your rich people versus my rich people. We need to have a movement that looks at ourselves as one cohesive movement, that it has an organizational structure that takes itself very seriously. Because we've got a big challenge right now. I mean, take your pick, but the global economy and climate change are big enough to keep us busy for the rest of my life and probably yours. But you keep going, you know. Well, I'm feeling a lot of clarity from you. I'm feeling a lot of commitment. I'm feeling some some fire, right? And also I'm hearing like, hey, these momentary defeats actually can be incredibly massive. I mean, the consequences of Reagan's policy that has now led to the student debt crisis, like we're talking about decades and decades and decades of increased suffering to the point where it feels immovable. And we have whole generations of people who've never known that it could be another way. And so I'm curious, like that, that's a lot. That's heavy, that's serious, that's real. And given that we will have just been through a midterm cycle, what would you say to young people or to all people who are, are really feeling defeat today? Oh, you, you turn defeat into victory by deciding what it is that has to change and just being methodical about it. I mean, if one election cycle can create an economic crisis, the next election cycle can turn it around. And I think we're definitely moving in the turn it around direction. I mean, there are going to be defeats and there are going to be victories in this election, this midterm election. But the, the victories actually have already happened in the sense that we're changing the narrative. The people who are alive and making waves are the ones who are resisting the status quo and resisting the deepening of this sort of fascist solution to the economic crisis that we're facing. And I think that, that that's the most positive thing we can imagine. And whether we win or lose any individual election in 2018, the momentum is very much on our side. And the worst thing that could happen would be for us to think, oh, because my candidate lost, my ideas lost. That is so not the case. It takes a while. And I think we've been at it now for a few years. I think it took us a while to understand the damage that had been done by the DLC to the Democratic Party. And I think we have a decision to make about whether or not we're going to be able to change the Democratic Party or whether we're going to have to build something new. But regardless of that, there are a lot of exciting things going on from Black Lives Matter to DSA to the Working Families Party to you name it. And they're not just electoral. They are also potentially game-changing in terms of how we view the economy. But we have to be very policy-minded at the same time that we're protest-minded and know what it is we're fighting for. Keep working on what the policies are that are going to really change the way the economy is set up and then make them happen. I'm curious, Barbara, I mean, one of the reasons why we feel so incredibly lucky to be talking to you is the perspective that you have because of the sheer quantity of experience that you have. Why is it so hard, at least from my perspective, why is it so hard to find elders in 
this work? Are we just not looking in the right places? Like we're not finding the right people? Or do you feel like folks drop out of this work? I mean, what message would you have for younger people about really digging in and being able to stay the course and and contribute a lifetime of work like what you've done? Wow, that's such an interesting question. (laughs) I think both things are true that Um, You know, a lot of people of my generation dropped out of political activity, but a lot of them did not. I think there is a a gulf between the generations. I mean, there are a lot of people my age who are very actively involved right now in one thing or another. I mean, fighting on immigration issues, you know, being part of Indivisible. I was on a march that's happening here in Oregon to try and preserve our 30-year-old state sanctuary law to keep our law enforcement folks from enforcing immigration laws. And most of the people on the march were elders. But there were some young people and there were a lot of conversations going on between them about immigration issues. I mean, you take your issue and you there's a lot to be learned about what it looked like, you know, 50 years ago and how we got to where we are now. Some things are very, very positively changing, but I don't think we have adopted the Native American and many other cultures have an attitude of of respecting their elders. And I don't think that's quite so true among at least white activists in the U.S. And I think that may be the case in Europe, but I don't really know. And I don't know why, you know, it's certainly my generation had the whole thing about don't trust anyone over 30, right? But it is something that we could do better at. And I feel a particular love for younger generations, partly because I love teaching and I love learning from my students, but also I learned so much from my elders in the Lawyers Guild. And when I told you earlier about the displaced homemakers, a lot of those women were old Rosie the Riveters. Man, I, I learned a lot about how to be an organizer, let me tell you. I would highly recommend looking for the older activists around you and just having coffee. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having coffee with us and sharing your thoughts. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. We commit to stay in the work. Here we go. Yes. (laughs) All right. Together. We also made a second phone call to someone who is doing powerful work who's on the other end of the historical spectrum. Alexandra Rojas. Alexandra is the 23-year-old executive director of Justice Democrats, an organization founded to transform the Democratic Party into a party that works for its voters, not just its corporate donors. Justice Democrats, and Alex specifically, recruited and helped elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and also supported dozens of progressive populist candidates who all rejected corporate donations and ran on a progressive populist platform. Prior to this, she was part of the Bernie 2016 campaign's national distributed organizing team and helped lead and run the volunteer-led Barnstorm program. Here's our conversation with Alexandra from a few weeks before the election. Good morning, Alexandra. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so glad that you're here, of course, during the intensity of the electoral cycle. We're recording this together before 
election day, but it's going to be really cool to hear some of your perspective on victory and loss since Justice Democrats has already been through so many rounds of many victories already this year. Would love to just kick it off by hearing a little bit about your personal story. What brought you to this work and what is Justice Democrats up to? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm definitely a newer to politics. I've always been watching from afar, but it was always through the context of, you know, how is this going to impact my family versus actively getting involved. And like many, I think young people that at least I've met in doing this started back in 20, 2015 when Bernie Sanders announced his run for presidency. And honestly, since then, it's been, you know, going from super volunteer out in California to bugging the campaign to get on board, moving to Vermont, and then meeting some of the people that we ended up founding Justice Democrats with. So at least for me, I went from working multiple jobs, going to school full-time and working full-time to now, you know, electing candidates, slates of candidates to Congress, hopefully. So that's been pretty incredible. And it's actually the reason why I think JD started. I worked on the national distributed organizing team out in Vermont, and we were just trying to cast how do you mobilize all of these people that were in states that had no staff. And so we had to work with extremely limited resources to mobilize these thousands of people into phone banking, into texting, um, and all of the sort of digital tools that are now popular, I feel like at least are being debuted in the 2018 midterm cycles, is the same type of organizing model that an approach that we've used on Alexandria's campaign and how we think of you know doing field here at Justice Democrats. And one of the things that we kept hearing also, because I worked on barnstorms and these organizing rallies, predominantly while I was on the campaign, was, you know, if when we get Bernie elected, you know, how is he going to get anything done? We have a Congress that does absolutely nothing right now. It's majority, it's majority male, it's majority millionaire, and it doesn't actually reflect the diversity of ethnicity, of background, um, of, of America, right? And so... We, we sort of looked at this model of this national presidential size campaign and envisioned that funneling that energy towards electing this new generation of leadership to Congress, uh, specifically in 2018 during the midterms, which is typically a dormant political cycle. So, you know, our mission is electing that new type of democratic majority, uh, one that's actually going to work to create a thriving economy, a democracy that works for people not big money and corporations. And the way that we, I think, transform politics in America is that if we can elect that leadership into public office at some of the highest levels of our government that actually represent the interests of all of America's people, we can build that just, equitable, and sustainable America with that vision that we want, that works for everybody, not just those at the top. So our our entire purpose is really focusing on recruiting, staffing, and, and empowering this new wave of leaders like Alexandria, like Ilhan Omar, like Rashida Tlaib, and Ayana, who fight for our litmus test, which is Medicare for all, free college and trade school, ending mass incarceration, $15 living wage, at least tied to inflation, a Green New Deal, and right, so much more. And all without, you know, accepting any corporate or lobbyist money to, to fund these campaigns. And you're really proving that big victory in that vein is possible. I mean, the fact that you recruited and and supported Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in this huge upset victory here in New York. Would love to hear a little bit about that story 
and how that began, whether it felt surprising and sort of what you've learned about victory and the what comes after a victorious election day from that experience. For us, it started back in 2015. We actually were called something else before Justice Democrats, but we had started the work of recruiting candidates in 2015. The way that we started out, because we were like, how are we going to do this? <laughs> how do you recruit for hundreds of races? And for us, it's really important to be really intentional and be targeted because a lot of these incumbents, like Joe Crowley, have never been challenged before. But also, at the time, it was more important, like, who is the actual representative? And so we solicited our supporter base, which at the time, I think, was probably around 100,000 when we had first launched for nominations. We did a whole campaign around it. And we actually ended up generating close to 10,000 submissions from people around the country of who they thought in their neighborhood and their community would best represent them. And just started going through that. And through that process, it took a really, really long time. And eventually, out of that, there were 12 candidates that, you know, we helped set up their campaigns. We walked them through how to file, set up their websites, launch their campaigns, train them on our mission and our platform, and Alexandria was one of them. Then through that, you know, over a year-long process starting in 2015 and going through multiple rounds of and hours of conversations with people from all over the country, you know, 12 people made it out and she happened to be one of them. So we've actually known her for quite some time. And I think part of the reason why that's really important is because, one, she was nominated from her community. She didn't talk about it that much, but... You know, her family, her friends really believed in her way back then when she was still working as a bartender in the service industry and was going to Standing Rock and was a super volunteer on Bernie. I think one of the big things in her victory, honestly, and the type of person that she is is because she is like one of us, right? She was someone that didn't see herself reflected in candidates running for office. She was an ordinary person. And I think that allowed her to be able to do something like this you know, answer a call that we had asked her to and gives her a unique perspective when it comes to messaging around the issues that really impact people like healthcare. Even up until recently, she didn't have it. And that's absolutely huge and I think astounding for us to really think about. And so in that victory, I, I remember being in the room. I came in about a month and a half into the election. I, you know, obviously had been a part of it since the very beginning, but I hadn't really been too tapped in uh, outside of trying to use JD resources to help until getting on the ground a month and a half out and doing the texting, calling, volunteer recruitment programs, and really seeing the movement that she started there. And you said that you're an organizer, you come from social movements, and there are just some campaigns. I felt this way about Bernie, and I feel this way about Ocasio, where all of the people that you're surrounded with are putting everything in their being into this election. And that was incredible. And so victory coming after the day after <laughs> when we saw it, we were extremely surprised, but also there's just so much love because every single person that was there worked their heart out every minute of every day, some of them for literally a year when no one was following the race at all. So it's very emotional from that perspective. But we've also, you know, ASC is, like I said, one of 12. And only one of three that are still in the general election. So we've had a lot of losses already. And I think the way that I see it is personally, I think that the left in general hasn't really invested or at least wave of activism since Bernie. And, and so 
we're taking here at JV every single race and every moment that we're doing some of this organizing work is absolutely critical and is going to feed that sort of long-term movement building that we have to do. And I think the only way that we get better and we learn more quickly on how to actually win some of these seats and, and gain power in the halls of Congress is by continuing to run in these competitive primaries and getting new people involved just like I did on Bernie and you know new working class leaders like Alexandria in people's faces so that this is the new norm and then learn each year, each time around on how to do it better. And I think we're doing pretty good considering, you know, we've been around for a little over a year um, and the Democratic Party has been around for a decade and we're already seeing 26 of our candidates advance to the general election. And Alexandria, alongside a caucus of other really amazing freshmen that believe in, you know, all, all of our platform is enormous. Yes. Well, what was that victory like? You know, we're talking about the day after the general election at this point, what did you learn about both the possibility and the liability maybe of victory and loss in this cycle so far? I, I, feel, I feel really grateful that we've even gotten this far. I know for many people, it's been a lot of sacrifice and believing at least on, uh, from JD and AOC, you know, no one knew about us. For a year, they thought we were crazy and even investing in candidates like her. And so it's, it's a gratefulness feeling, but it's also this sense of urgency of how incredibly important this moment in time is. I totally concede to being only 23 and not, not having lived a whole bunch, but I know what it was like growing up during the recession. I've seen what it's like for my parents to struggle. I understand the threat of climate change. And I think my whole generation does, and the generation behind me does too. And we only have so much time, I think, to really, really drastically change course if we want to shift the direction that we're headed in. So for each victory and each loss, there's a sense of, at least for me, gratefulness and how, how far we've come, but we have so far to go and not a whole lot of time to do it. Yes. And I want to ask with that, I mean, as a young leader that is doing so much as a woman of color, how has it been for you in sustaining yourself amidst the highs and lows of electoral work? What are you learning and how are you taking care of yourself and really looking out for your own leadership? It's an ongoing process for me personally. (laughs) Even before getting involved politically, I tend to put myself on sort of the back burner because I want you know, the people that I care about, the people that I love, and now the people that I work alongside to feel as supported as possible. So the way that I personally do that is, you know, I travel a lot, but I have to be home at some point for weeks at a time uh, and, and be with my boyfriend of, of eight years, call my family. But honestly, it's, it's a work in progress. But I think what fueled me is victories like Alexandria and then even victories like Karen Harris. You know, I was there for two months and we didn't win, but it was incredible, the movement that we started in a state that has no infrastructure. And now I have 30 more friends <laughs> that I can call for anything. And it's, it's meeting other people that are going through the same struggles that I think keeps me going and then taking time to just not talk to anybody <laughs> and just be with some of the people closest to you. Yeah. 
That's right. So do you have any recommendations for folks who are experiencing victory, loss, over inundation with the news today? Any recommendations for like the best days after the election recovery plan based on your experience? Sleep. I sleep a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Shut off your phone and allow yourself. I have to allow myself to like look a little bit at the news, but otherwise try to shut it off and take a day to to just breathe. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. We are so totally grateful for the leadership of young folks, of progressives, of people of color, of women and gender nonconforming folks that are totally at the forefront, not only at the forefront, but also really supporting and uh, driving forward the progressive victories that we're experiencing right now. So, so grateful for your leadership. Thank you for your hard work. I hope you get some rest after this election. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so fast forward. We called Alexandra early the morning after the election, fresh out of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory party to get a second quick update. So here she is. So excited that we have this moment of your time and in a moment where you must be like incredibly tired (laughs) the morning after the election. And I know y'all were also out late last night celebrating the incredible historic victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What was that party like and how are you feeling this morning? The energy was amazing. And for someone like me, who's sort of known her for the past two and a half years and help start that campaign. It's just been absolutely surreal and humbling to see that all of the work that we've done, all of the work that Justice Democrats supporters have done in contributing and volunteering and making phone calls and knocking on doors has all paid off. And we've seized power, right? As our fearless leader has, <laughs> has said, power is not, is not given, it is seized. And uh, everybody in the room was fired up and really understood that throughout the entire night. So it was incredible. That's amazing. You know, like all of us sort of sitting with this morning, like the incredible victories and kind of transformational historic moments that have happened, you know, including Ocasio-Cortez being the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, which is amazing. And then also sitting with some of the races that were deeply important to us that we lost. I know one of the JD candidates, Jess King in Pennsylvania, I had gone and volunteered for and really cared about that race. And and devastated to see her make great headway, but also ultimately lose the election. And so curious about for you this morning, what's standing out in terms of both victory and loss? We should acknowledge that it it does suck to, <laughs> to lose sometimes. You know, it, losses can be really hard, but I think what Jess has accomplished is some of the best organizing in the history of campaigning. And these sort of practices and movement building techniques, we're going to be able to pass on. And on on Jess King's campaign, where you saw, you know, someone like their campaign manager who hadn't done electoral work before, but just go all in on this campaign. It's really hard once you've (laughs) gone all in to get out. And that energy, those people is what gives me so much hope. And it's what fuels our work at Justice Democrats. Yeah, Becca Rast, the campaign manager you're talking about, joined us on episode two of our of our surviving election series here on the podcast and talked a lot about how she's doing campaign management differently from a social movement perspective. And I'll say just like being there, you can feel that. 
the spirit and connection and sort of vibrancy of the relationships that have been built through that campaign is just not something that like ends on any election day, right? Yeah. And it doesn't happen all the time. You know, like I feel like the general message that comes out of this is usually to be like, no, we're we've already won and all of that. And that I think that is so deeply true, but also, you know, it's important to acknowledge these losses and talk about what comes out of them. Cause I think what Jess did was something truly unique. I really appreciate that about your leadership, particularly as an ED who's charged with sort of presenting like, here's why what we're doing is important and here's how we're winning every step of the way is to also acknowledge loss. I know you're like already thinking deeply about 2020 and like where is the little catch where you get to breathe, where you get to sort of integrate the lessons. What do you have planned for the next couple of weeks? For me personally, it's really been, you know, almost three years of really hard work at the founding staff at JD. So we definitely want to break, but also there needs to be this, I think, big moment of reflection. For me, I'm going to be uh, heading out to Arizona and meeting up with some of the most amazing people I've ever met on the Bernie campaign that I worked on. We're all in different parts of the movement and are all probably super, super exhausted and we're going to have fun together. But I think there also needs to be this moment of reflection where we can, you know, have that honest, frank feedback for ourselves. I just don't see how we can be successful moving forward if we don't constantly do that. Encouraging folks to find community. I mean, for you, your folks who are going to meet up in Arizona, for others thinking about, you know, local organizations or friends, the more that we can do to sort of share vulnerably and process together, the, the quicker that reflection will digest and turn into possibility for right action going forward. I think that's right. So just really want to thank you for your time this morning, Alexandra, wishing you a good reflection and rest and excited to follow your leadership into 2020. I can't really think of a better way to close out this episode than by encouraging finding your people, getting together and diving into some reflection. Huge thank you to our amazing guests who gave their time in such a busy time um, to help hold community with us together uh, in these moments of processing the election results and reorienting to the work ahead of us. We are also so grateful to our sponsor, Groundswell Action Fund, for their incredible work. Please do donate to support them. And we also invite you to help us sustain this project at patreon.com slash healingjustice. If you're new to the podcast and came in during the Surviving Election series, you may not know that we have over 30 recorded conversations and practices with movement leaders that are mostly focused on how they center healing, spirituality, conflict resolution, healthy and vibrant culture building in their movement strategy work. Um, Each episode is a conversation with an incredible movement leader, and then the corresponding episode is that leader leading us in a practice that they use in their work. They range from everything to uh, meditation for non-striving for activists, to guidance on how to build a sacred space uh, for yourself, and also even including conflict resolution kind of facilitation tips um, if you're having conflict in your team. So I highly recommend checking out our other episodes. 
And again, if you can support us, if you can partner with us in keeping this resource going into next year, please join us as a sponsor on Patreon, patreon.com slash healing justice. You can join our email list and see the other episodes specifically from the Surviving Elections series at healingjustice.org slash elections. And finally, hey, you're invited. This is the first moment that we are announcing that we're throwing a party. It is our first ever party since before we launched. Um, to bring our listeners together, it's going to be in Brooklyn, New York. I know many of y'all are not anywhere close to here. Um, and so one of the things we're doing is at the party, we're putting on a live show. We're going to be live streaming it on our social media. So find us at Healing Justice on Instagram, at HJ Podcast on Twitter, and Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook. You can follow along there and we'll also be making a podcast episode out of that live show that we'll share right here on the podcast. So even though you won't be able to drink the wine, taste the cake, feel the energy in the room, we hope, you, we hope you'll be able to feel it a little bit and celebrate with us via the podcast episode. If you are in New York or close enough to come through, December 11th, it's a Tuesday night, we're going to be in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Um, it's a small fundraiser, although the tickets are sold at sliding scale. So uh, we're hoping that it's also really accessible for folks. And uh, we're going to have music and a live show with some of our absolutely favorite guests from season one, like Sumitra Rajkumar, like Alexis Francisco, like the Peace Poets. Jillian White is joining us. Um, it's going to be a really fun night. And the thing I look forward to most about it is for you to be able to come and connect to other people who have been connected to this project, either as volunteers or listeners or just folks who are doing this kind of work in the world. So many of us are so hungry for community. I know that longing is deeply part of why I am doing this project. Um, and so I can't wait to be all in the same space, celebrating our first birthday as a project, recording our first live show, and just straight up enjoying each other. So if you want to come on December 11th, check out tinyurl.com slash hjparty, like Healing Justice Party. Um, you can look at tickets there. And if you can't make it, you can still check it out, share the invitation with people you might know in New York. Um, and you can also make a donation to help us afford what it takes to put the party on uh, if you want to be part of it in that way. So again, that's tinyurl.com slash hjparty. All right. Lastly, a huge thank you to our incredible rapid response team who put together this episode for you today even though we're also tired after the election. Thank you to Katie McCutcheon for audio editing. Thank you to Jillian White, Park Ballantyne, and Guido Gergenti for working on all of the details and managing different elements of production throughout the past two months. Thank you to Josiah Werning for design and visuals. And big thank you to Zach Meyer, our sound designer at The Coal Room. We're so grateful that you've been with us. Uh, we together can endure and even thrive in these times. And so sending you big love and deep rest uh, as we sort of integrate, digest, and move into the next phase as a country and as a united people together. 
Hear you soon.